Thank you for worshiping with us this morning. God bless you. Thanks to all of you for serving us and leading us today. Really great. Hey, can you remember the best neighbor you've ever had? Just think about that in your mind for now. Just the be- and we've had some good neighbors. We have good neighbors now. But I think the best neighbor we've ever had, her name was Lynette. Here's the context. Some of you don't know this about us, but back in 2009, 2010, my poor wife was suffering from extreme pain. We didn't know why. The pain got worse and worse. She was using a cane to walk, eventually in a wheelchair. It was very difficult. Couldn't figure out what was going on. Turns out she had a rare disease called, wait for it, pigmented volunodular synovitis. Kind of rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? <clears throat> I think they call it something different now, but that's the one that stuck because that's the one we knew then. But uh, wrecked her hip. So in the summer or the, the spring and then summer of 2010, she had two different surgeries. One to figure out what, what, really what was going on and then the next to do a total hip replacement. It was a really difficult season for us, a very painful season for us. And it was, the, so Lynette, she's this great neighbor anyway. She's the kind of neighbor that never keeps track and is always willing to invite your, your hey, I'm going to this. She had five kids, by the way, already. So she figured if I'm going to the store with five kids, why not take a couple more along? It's more fun, right? So she'd take our kids and do stuff, and she's a great neighbor. But I remember distinctly the day that Lynette went door to door through our neighborhood with a clipboard, getting people to sign up for meals for us. And that's a good neighbor. She went to the, the widower Nufi on the corner and the Pakistani mom and her daughter who lived down the street. She hit up everybody. She hit up the guys that work at the video store and the liquor store. You know those guys that smoked most of their paycheck off the deck? And the friendly guys. She went to them. She went to everybody. And, and she had a list. She had dates. And she's like, when, when will you sign up for a meal for the green trees? And she signed up for quite a few herself. She's an amazing neighbor. Great neighbor. One of the best neighbors we've ever had. Never forget her. She's a good friend. Can you remember some of your best neighbors? Anyone had a good neighbor? <laughs> oh, let me ask you this then. You probably haven't forgotten your worst neighbor though, have you? Yeah, don't shout that name out. The worst neighbors have also a way of being indelibly printed on our minds and memories. Here we are in the new year, uh, Erickson Covenant. We're just taking a couple weeks to step back and orient ourselves for the year. And we're talking about setting our loves for the year. Today we're talking about setting our love for neighbor. We're taking our cues from Jesus himself, who, when he was asked point blank to tell them what's the most important thing in life, what's the greatest command, the single thing, if you lined all the things that God told us to do, you lined it all up in order of priority, what would be at the top? And Jesus answered this way. From Mark 12, he said, Hear, O Israel, the people of God, he's quoting from Deuteronomy, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And during a season here in the new year where a lot of people are setting goals, which I think are helpful, I think are good, setting goals for our lives, I want to ask this question. What if we spent more time setting our loves than setting our goals? What would it look like if after setting our loves, we then put practices into our daily lives that helped us live out those loves in real 
tangible ways. I find this question provoking. I've been thinking about it. I've been praying about it because I sense that by setting our loves, by getting that clear in our mind, we'd be more likely to experience the kind of changes in our lives and affect the kind of changes in the lives of those around us that God wants to see come into our lives and the lives of others. Last week we explored uh, the first part of Jesus' response, that we're to set our love on God with all of who we are. And if you weren't here and didn't hear the message, I encourage you to go online and listen to it. It really is part one of part two. But these two loves, loving God and then loving your neighbor, they can't be pulled apart. They're like binary planets that, that revolve around a center. So much so that when Jesus was asked to give the single greatest commandment, he in one sense couldn't. He had to give two. They were always revolving around each other, combining them into this single way of life, the way of love. When Jesus reached back, he quoted, yes, first from Deuteronomy and then from the book of Leviticus, which I know you all spend a tremendous amount of time in. But he wasn't just reaching for a random verse. This simple command to love your neighbor as yourself, in this, Jesus pulled back the curtain on God's central goal for all human relationships, whether it's the intimate and the familiar and in your family and close relationships, right up to the geopolitical global scale, all relationships. So we're going to take a few minutes together and just unpack what this means. Because the truth is, in order for you and I to set our love on neighbor, we actually have to know who the neighbor is. Jesus, when he quoted from the book of Leviticus, uh, he was quoted from a book that focused on the life and the relationships of God's people. These people had just come out of Egypt. They hadn't formed or lived as a society before in the same way. They were now formed into a new nation. We're going into a new land. And Leviticus was setting out many laws and many commandments, some of which sound very strange to our ears today. But when we pay attention, we discover that all these commands, all these different laws that were given, even the ones that sound weird, they all express God's goal that his people at that time live in a right relationship with him and a reconciled relationship with each other in this new land he was giving to them. Everything was about holy, righteous living, which is to say everything was about living in relationships of love. The original reference of Jesus' quote, the original context, I should say, of Jesus' quote in Leviticus 19 is love for each other. Let me read the slightly broader context in which this quote comes. It's this, from Leviticus 19, 17 to 18. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so that you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord, which is his way of saying, this is God talking to you, the one who rescued you. I'm giving you a command that I expect you to follow. God commands his people to love each other. He doesn't suggest it. He doesn't think it might be a good idea. He commands them. And not just, to, not just to tolerate each other or sort of put up with each other or sort of, you know, do nice things at Christmas, but to love each other. It's his command. Just like any good parent, God does not like it when his kids are tearing each other apart. How many parents like that? Don't you just love the sounds coming up from the basement? 
Or worse yet, the back of the van? No, you do not. God doesn't like them any more than we do. In fact, I might suggest he likes them even less. As followers of Jesus, we're called to love all people, but particularly we are called and expected to love each other. Paul said in Galatians 6.10, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Loving God and loving others cannot be separated. The Apostle John put it this way. He said, if someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person's a liar. For if we do not love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? And he has given us this command. Those who love God must also love their fellow believers. Sending our loves on neighbor then starts Right here. It starts with us. Right here in our community. Right here in our church. Right here with fellow followers of Jesus, brothers and sisters in Christ. We are commanded to love each other. Well, what does that look like? Perhaps you've heard this before, but there's a lot of passages in the New Testament using the phrase one another. One word in Greek, two words in English. So she used 100 times in 94 verses, which means there's verses that double up on it. And looking at the kind of the stats on these is, is kind of interesting. Four of them have to do with kissing one another, which I thought I'd suggest to the Dream Team for implementation, but <laughs> I, I, I think it might require some cultural interpretation here, although our youth could love it. Um, okay, so when we, when we look at the one another verses, though, there's some other common themes that, that pop up. So relationships within the body of Christ are, of course, one of them, with a third of the one another commands relating to our unity. Relating to our unity as the body of Christ. Verses like, be at peace with one another. Don't grumble among one another. Be of the same mind with one another. Accept one another. Be tenderhearted, forgiving of one another. Uh, Bear with and forgive one another. Confess your sins to one another. Another third of them just are flat out direct instruction to love each other. Like over and over again. This is my commandment that you... Love one another, right? So over and over again, at least a third of them just cover that. 15% of them stress an attitude of humility and deference among believers where we're called to uh, give preference to one another in love, to regard the other person, one another, as more important than ourselves, to serve one another, to wash one another's feet, to, to be of the same mind, to submit to one another. There's no way around it. Setting our love for neighbor starts right here. Seeking reconciliation, loving the people that we're with. So I want to ask very practically right now at this part in the service, how are you going to set your love for each other this year? How are you going to set your loves for one another, practically speaking? What are some things you're going to incorporate, you will incorporate into your life, into your daily, weekly, regular routine, so that you don't, by distraction or default, kind of forget about us? Forget about each other, but obey the command of Jesus, the command of our Father to love one another. Maybe you'll put a regular practice in your life of of writing an encouragement note. Like you'll put a stack of notes somewhere where you can't miss them, where every week perhaps you'll you'll pick up a note and you'll write a note to someone to thank them for what they're doing, to encourage them in their walk with Jesus. Maybe you'll, you'll put some kind of practice in place so that you're regularly praying by name for certain people. Or maybe going through the phone directory to pray for one another. Perhaps you'll set up a regular coffee date with a friend where you can mutually encourage one another in your walk with Christ, where you can ask some questions like, how is it really going? 
How are you growing? Where are you being challenged? Maybe you'll make a meal for a single parent. Or better yet, invite them and their kids over to your house for a meal. And enjoy them and get to know them. Maybe maybe you'll begin to realize, hey, in order to really love one another, I want to show more interest in the youth in our community, in the youth in our church. And so I'm going to make sure that on a Sunday morning, I always speak to a youth for at least five minutes, even if it's painful. It's not painful for me. I love talking to the youth. They're all commenting on my beard today. Some loved it and Rebecca hated it. Maybe you'll just make priority in your life so that when you gather together, you're regularly worshiping God but connecting with each other. You're coming early for coffee time. You're making space in Bible studies to, to, to really hear from each other. You're just, you're just more open to the people around you that God has called you to love. So we love each other. But it doesn't stop with us, does it? Just a few verses later, in Leviticus 19, the people of Israel are told not only to love their neighbors as themselves, they're told to love foreigners as they love themselves. Listen to this. Leviticus 19, 33 to 34, just a few verses later. It says this. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. This is such astonishing laws, actually. Astonishing. Think about it. Treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you are foreigners in Egypt. And there it is again. I am the Lord your God. That's how he ends it. Pay attention. This is God, the God who rescued you, the God who redeemed you, the God who's making you into a new nation. This is my command to you. Love the foreigners as you love yourselves. What we discover in this, and I'm going to read a few other verses, is that the the neighbor now isn't just one another. It's also the excluded others. The people who are often overlooked, who are unnoticed and unprotected. People who are on the fringes. Deuteronomy 10, we heard it read, but I want to pull out just a couple verses from that. We hear this wonderful description of who God is, immediately followed by the ethical implications for God's people. This is who God is, therefore this is how you should act. Deuteronomy 10, 18-19 says, He, that's God, defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. These three groups, the fatherless, the widow, and the foreigner, pull together those who in ancient society, but also often today, are the last to be loved. The ones who are not cared for, the ones who are most open to abuse, to misuse. And God wants his people, shaped by his character, to love them, to defy what is normal. Not just not abuse them, but to love them, to care for them, to show his loving character to those who would be most vulnerable among them. And whenever God's people fell into idolatry and stopped living according to the ways he's called them to live, it was always the fatherless and the widow and the foreigner who paid first. They were always the ones who were abused first. Let's explore these three categories together. The first category mentioned is the fatherless. Over and over again. These are the children who've been abandoned, who for whatever reason don't have family around them to provide the loving nurture, the care, the interest, the commitment to make them and help them flourish. This covers the unwanted, unborn, who are aborted at an astonishing rate. This covers children in our foster system, in orphanages around the world. This covers the homeless kids in slums and streets of our cities. 
This includes infants, but it also includes teenagers. In some cases, I believe it extends into the young adult years as these children grow up but have never been included in a family, have never had a mom, have never had a dad, not really, never had a family who loved them and protected them and welcomed them and supported them and cared them for them in ways, ways that they've never experienced. Without a doubt, without a doubt, it is God's will for us as his people to care for the fatherless in whatever way that we can. What does that mean for us? What does it mean for us right here in the Creston Valley? What does it mean for us at the Erickson Covenant Church? I need to tell you straight. I don't know. But I'm convinced it means something for us. And so I'm actually asking you that you would pray about this. That we would pray about it together to figure out how are we going to set our love on the fatherless as a church? How are we going to do that? As a church, as families. You know, I was talking to Becky last week. Who's one of our uh, dear social workers responsible for kids that are living in dangerous situations. And she said, the truth of the matter is, they're so short on foster homes in our valley that we're going to have to take kids and send them to other communities. So imagine this. Kids that are already having to be pulled out of a dangerous home, a home that's not able to provide support, but then on top of that, they've got to be pulled out of their school. They've got to be pulled out of their friendship circles. They've got to be pulled away from a teacher who knows enough of their story and cares for them. They've got to be pulled away from a social worker who's been advocating for them and plunked down in a community hours away because there's no foster families here to care for them. I mean, God has commanded us to care for them. What do we do about that? What do we do? What do we do as a community? What do we do as families? And I realize that not everyone here could foster, but we as a community could provide the support around families who God has called to, called to foster. In fact, following the first service, uh, one of our elders came up to me and said, look, I can't foster, but I'd love to support a family who does. I'd love to be in on that. And I'm asking you flat out right now, we could stop the sermon right now and just go home. I would ask you to pray about what is our response as Erickson Covenant Church to the fatherless need in our community. But I also want to show you a, a powerful video, a, a, a vision video that was, was shown at the Global Leadership Summit that Willow Creek puts on a few years ago that just struck me so powerfully as not only an example of God's heart for the fatherless, but what the church can do when they catch his heart for the fatherless. So let's take a look. Watch this video. Mother Cabrini is one of my favorite places to go. Seeing that statue of Jesus, looking out over the city that I love and the city that that Jesus loves. And when I'm up there, I pray for my family, I pray for friends. But then I also look at that that statue of Jesus where he's revealing his heart. And as he does, you know, we oftentimes think of asking Jesus into our heart. But what if he's asking us to enter into his, into things that are close to him? His love and his mercy, his grace, but also his heart for orphans. raised by my grandmother, never knew my father, and my mom was absent for many years of my life. Because she didn't make that much money, we were constantly being evicted, and so we were moving from house to house, sometimes every few months.
with all the moving around, this church was the one constant in my life. And this is the place that my grandmother made sure I went to since before kindergarten. And this is the place where, when I was nine years old, a Sunday school teacher asked what it meant to have a relationship with Christ. And I didn't have the answer, so she explained it to me. And it was here that she led me to, to give my life to Christ and then brought me out to my grandmother and told her. And then two weeks later, I'm in the second worship service ever, and I'm being baptized. And that was the moment where something happened for me because... Because when, when you're being baptized, I say in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that pastor said, Father, and I didn't know my dad. And so I was wanted a dad, and, and um, so I got dad. And then um, so I asked my grandmother for a Bible, and she gave me a Bible. And, and I, I went looking for a small, short book in the Bible, and the first book I found with five chapters was James. And I started reading through that. That means I was nine years old when I first read that verse, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless, cares for orphans in their distress. I'm not sure exactly when I began to realize that what God was doing in my past was connected with what God was doing in my future. When I was nine years old and got that first Bible and read James chapter 1, verse 27, I didn't know that was connected to the family that God was going to have for my wife and I our first child we had biologically and then we started building our family through adoption we became certified as foster and adoptive parents and we got a phone call and you can bring her home she's less than a day old and that became our daughter kia got another phone call he's 10 months old you can bring him home he became our son gabriel got another phone call he's three months old you can bring him home and that became our son james and then next thing i know we're on a plane to ethiopia bringing home our daughter and our son mehret and temeskin what became clear to us is that what God was doing with our family is something he was doing in his larger family as well, that he was waking up the bride of Christ in our city and across this nation when it came to the cry of orphans. So I went to our lieutenant governor at the time, Lieutenant Governor Norton, and I remember sitting down with her saying, I've done the math. There are almost 900 children who are legally free in the foster care system. There are 1,500 churches in the Denver metro area. If every church took one child, you'd have a waiting list of families, but not a waiting list of children and so I made her a promise that day. I said, you can count on us. We will start something that will result in at least 10% of these children finding forever families. And then I went back to my home congregation. I said, guess what I promised you're going to do? Colorado Community Church has been around 20 years. And it's this wonderful, vibrant gathering uh, that is multicultural. This church is about how do you wash the feet of the city? People began to step up, some fostering, some adopting, others providing wraparound support. And something happened. Something took off. We, we launched this organization called Project 127, and we started to see dozens of churches step on board. It has now become this national model, inspiring ministries in Seattle and, and in D.C. and in Arizona and New York and Wisconsin. And so Colorado has now become a place where... There are families waiting for children, and we are going to continue to work tirelessly until there's a family waiting for every single child. It's because as I read the scriptures, caring for orphans is as natural as reading our Bibles and praying, and we also reach out to those who are in distress. And for me, it just causes me to sit back and say, only God, only God can do these kinds of things. It puts me in awe of God, it allows me to move forward to the front of my seat because I'm wondering, what is he doing in my life today? And I'm going to need in 10 years. I don't know, but I can't wait to see.
Would you guys pray with me on that? I need to pray about that. Jesus, I pray that you would lead us as we pray as a community of how we are to respond to the fatherless. That you would lead us and guide us and inspire us by your vision and your heart. Amen. Second group mentioned are widows, which in the ancient days meant women who didn't have family supports around them. Um, women who had no family supports around them. They, like the fatherless, didn't have the social safety net of the family to protect and provide for them. They were often subject to sexual abuse and abject poverty. Now, in our day, in our context, in North America and Canada, there are more safety social nets available for some widows. But in many places in the world, this is still not true. And you might be surprised to discover how many widows, or I want to expand the category to include single elders, who continue to be in need of protection and provision for someone to care for them, to walk alongside them, to advocate for them, to be present in their lives, living right here in our valley, right on our streets, right on our roads, some of them hidden to our eyes, some of them we're aware of. They aren't necessarily all widowed and widowers. Maybe they were never married, but they find themselves in a place where they don't have a lot of support around them. They don't have people checking in on them. They don't have someone who loves them and cares for them. Maybe you know some. Or maybe you, as you have this conversation with our Father, can ask Him to show you who it is among you, who it is on your street. You can initiate a conversation and a friendship to love the widow, male or female. This second group of of, of widows represent women who are often in poverty. And I, I need to mention that the, one of the mo- modern-day equivalents to the ancient widow is actually the single mom in Canada, which, statistically speaking, is the poorest person in Canada, a single mom raising kids. And to actually focus it even more specifically, the very poorest person in Canada, demographically speaking, would be not just a single mom, but an indigenous single mom. Aren't we called to love them? In fact, we're not just called to love them. We're commanded to love them. We're commanded to love them by the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to love them as we love ourselves, or dare I even say it, to love them as we love our own children. We heard it quoted from James 1.27, that pure and genuine religion in the sight of God our Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. We are called to care for those among us who would represent the widow, one of the excluded others. But within that category of excluded others, we also come back to the foreigner, which is where we started. God, who had rescued his people out of foreign territory, now turns around and tells his people not to live as though all foreigners were the enemy, but rather to love love these foreigners not as their enemy, but as people that God loves, to love these foreigners as themselves. Why? Because if anyone is going to get ripped off used, trampled on, pushed over. It's going to be the people who are new to the community, who don't know the language, who don't know the customs, who don't know who's going to give them a fair price, who are still trying to figure out the the, the culture and the costs and the ways of doing business. These folks are easy bait for people with no scruples. 
You know, in the waves of immigration from Europe uh, in the 1800s and, and 1900s, there were always charlatans and crooks who would hover at the ports waiting for people to abuse, to use. And, and the ones who particularly didn't know English, maybe they were from Sweden or Germany or Norway or France, they were particular targets. Here they were, showing up on the shores of North America with all of their earthly possessions, with all of their savings, and then they're greeted by this helpful person who's going to help them settle. And more than a few families, fresh off the boat, lost all that they had to someone who abused them as foreigners. Today, it's often foreigners who are abused in in factories and workplaces. Yes, around the world, but even in North America, where they don't, maybe they don't know the laws fully, they don't know their rights, they don't have enough of a command of the language to speak up, or they're afraid that if they do, they'll lose the job that they have. You might remember the horrific story right here in the Kootenays, in the Fernie Tim Hortons. Filipino workers here on temporary work uh, visas uh, required by law the, 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 the uh, owner of the Tim Hortons to pay them a certain amount, but he didn't like that. And so he paid them a certain amount, but then he followed them to the bank machine and demanded a financial kickback. Remember that story? He was abusing them for a long time. When it finally came to light, Tim Hortons, of course, got rid of those uh, owners. Uh, however, they did that, and, and these Filipinos who had been abused were compensated. But the weird thing is this. Whenever I bring up foreigners and immigrants in this context, guess what happens? Someone gets mad at me for being too political. And so I want to address that very directly. I know that there are many strong feelings right here in our community about immigration. I'm well aware of that. I'm aware that some of you have been very upset by political decisions made by the government regarding immigration. Some of you have strong opposition to certain political things, certain immigration policies, and others of you have been very supportive of them. I know that. And I think there's plenty of room for conversation, for debate, for opinion. Not for vitriol, not for hatred, not for despising or demonizing other countries or other people. We have no room for that in the Christian faith. But this conversation, we can have that. We can do that within the body of Christ. We can do that even within the larger Canadian society. But here, I want to say this clearly. There should be no debate whatsoever on how we are to treat foreigners who are among us, immigrants who have come to us. God's word is crystal clear, and his commands are right and true, that we are to love the foreigner, the immigrant, as we love ourselves, period. I am the Lord. You know, it's coming straight from him. We're to welcome them, befriend them, help them. We're to serve them. We're to open our homes to them. We're to invite them into our lives. And any Christian who lets his or her opinion about a certain immigration policy or a certain political stance, any Christian who allows that to affect or reduce or change their love and their commitment to immigrants who are among us have simply forgotten who they're following. We're not following a political party. We're following Jesus, the king of all, the one who died so that every language, every tribe, every tongue, every person could be welcomed into his multi-ethnic family. And this family of the father is something that exceeds every nation. It supersedes our Canadianness or our Americanness or whether we're indigenous or English or Irish or Scandinavian or whatever ethnicity we hail from. It supersedes that. We let God's command, God's character shape our hearts and our lives. Not some fear of the other or some policy we don't like or some opinion we've heard. We're the church of Jesus Christ. We're not defined by ethnicity. 
We're defined by the Father who loves us all. So I asked the question, how can we set our loves on foreigners, on the immigrants who are among us? I think there's a few things that we can do, but I, I only say them to make suggestions for you to pray about. There may be more things that Jesus brings up for you. You could support the Creston Refugee Committee, the ongoing work of our refugee committee right here in the valley to sponsor families who've been displaced because of war or persecution or difficulty that's going on. You can befriend someone who is visibly ethnic, who's different than you. Maybe you can hear the accent. I had a conversation this week with a young couple who's getting married. And he is not from here. He is from a long ways away. And it was amazing to be involved in their lives at such a critical time. Maybe you want to offer to tutor a child in a home that is just learning English. And you could do that maybe through the refugee committee or maybe through Siebel or other things that are going on. Maybe you just want to make a meal, open a door, welcome a friendship. Pray for these new immigrants. Extend yourself. We're commanded to love them, not walk by them. I know that our time is slipping away, but I want to still make one more expansion to this definition of neighbor. It comes from one of the most famous parables of Jesus, the parable of the Good Samaritan, where we discover that a neighbor is not just one another, it's not just the excluded others, but it's any others in need. Most of us know this story. In Luke chapter 10, a Jewish traveler gets mobbed along the side of the road. He's left for dead. And when other fellow Jewish brothers came by, They moved over. They were too busy. They were afraid. They didn't want to get dirty. They didn't know what was going on. They skirted around and left him where he was. But along came a hated foreigner. And yes, that is part of the story that Jesus does on purpose. A Samaritan. There's great animosity between Jews and Samaritans. A Samaritan comes along the way and goes out of his way to help this man, paying extra out of his own pocket, risking his own life to care for for this man. And Jesus concludes his story by challenging all who heard him to be like that man. A few things quickly. You know, we haven't changed. We always want to restrict the definition of neighbor so that it excludes the person that we don't want to care for. That's what these guys were doing. Somehow they'd drawn the line of neighbor just far enough away from the guy on the side of the road that they felt they could still obey God's law and leave him where he lay. We always want to define the definition of neighbor so that there are certain people we don't need to love. But Jesus won't allow us to do that. He simply won't. And he uses this story to say something pure and simple and something that's said through all of Scripture, that anyone in need is a neighbor we are commanded to love without exception. Jesus inserts a hero into the story that everyone despised. He used an ethnically hated foreigner as his example of righteous living, as his example of fulfillment of God's law. It would be the equivalent today of having Christians ignoring someone on the side of the road who is a Christian and they know it, and then who comes along and helps them would be a Muslim. But not just any Muslim, in the context where there's ongoing strife between Muslims and Christians, that's the Muslim who would help them. That's what's going on in this story. Jesus holds us up in a way that rankles his opponents and maybe even shakes us up a bit too. And then a final thing I'll say, setting our loves upon a neighbor who is in need means that we have to be prepared to be interrupted in our daily lives. The thing about these guys is they had every excuse in the book for why they would ignore them. They were busy. They had places to go. They had commitments they'd already made. People were expecting them. You know, the list could go on and on. 
But setting our love upon a neighbor in need means that we have to somehow move ourselves out of the center. We have to recognize that however busy we are, however religiously active we are, when we see need, we are commanded to meet it in some way. Jesus pushes us past busyness, past boundaries, to define neighbor as anyone in need, without exception. So, neighbor is one another, neighbor is the excluded others, and neighbor is anyone in need. Well, let's conclude this and be practical. We can't just set our lives and say, yes, I want to leave here today loving my neighbor as I love myself. Even as we define it, we have to ask the question, how? The daily practical how. My first invitation to you this week is that you would take this story, maybe you would take one or any of these passages that we've talked about today, Luke 10 or Mark 12 or Deuteronomy 10 or any one of these passages. You would sit with them and you would ask this question, who is my neighbor now? Who is my neighbor now? Have this conversation with the Father. Like, sit with it and then say, Father, who is my neighbor? Like, who are the persons that are, that are near to me, that are known to me, that I'm commanded to love? Who is around me that I'm missing? Like, someone that's there that needs me to love, that I'm commanded to love, that we're commanded to love, but we're missing them. Who is it? Who's out as a church? Who are we missing? Who keeps coming up? Maybe someone you keep bumping into and, or someone that keeps coming to your mind. Who is that as you pray? Or maybe even more powerfully, who do you avoid? And have you been avoiding for some time now? As you have this conversation with the Father, pay attention to who the Holy Spirit brings to your mind and your heart. It could be someone from our community be someone at work, at school. Who's your neighbor now? And I think as we do that, there will be some people, some names, some real flesh and blood humans, not categories, but people that will come to us that God is calling us to set our love on this year. Because that's the second question. Once we've answered at least a bit of who is our neighbor now, we can then ask the question, how are we going to love them this year? Practically speaking, how are we going to put practices into our lives that will remind us when we're distracted, it will pull us back to it when we get off track, so that we love the neighbor that we've been commanded to love? You know the old trick of putting your bag in front of the door so you don't forget it in the morning? You all, no one does that? Keys in your, your shoe? Your, no? Okay. Well, it's a trick, and maybe you should try it. If you're in the habit of forgetting something... You put it in front of the door. You can't forget it when you leave unless you go out the back door, but that's another issue. So you put something in the way to remind yourself to do the thing you want to do that you know you might forget if you are distracted. You put a routine in place. What are the practical houses? Here's my challenge to you. After you spend some time talking to the Father about who your neighbor is, then you and the Holy Spirit have a big old brainstorm session. Get a blank sheet or two out. Better yet, do this with a friend or a family member. And start brainstorming, what are all the ways that I could love these neighbors this year? Let's just get a whole bunch of them. You're not going to do all 55 things, but brainstorm ideas. How could you love them? How could you set your love? What's some routine thing you could do? What's something you could set in your calendar? Or something you could remind yourself so that you are fulfilling the command that God has given us to set your love upon your neighbor? What's a practical thing you could do? 
There's so many things I started brainstorming a list and it went crazy. I'm not even going to say them. There's just so many different things. But I do challenge you to, don't, to not just do this alone. Maybe you'll brainstorm with a friend, but maybe you'll also decide together we're going to love a certain neighbor together. Together, we're going to support a family who's decided to foster. Whatever it is, we're going to do this together. Who is my neighbor now? And how will I love them this year? Let's close. Here's the thing. Jesus has called us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And as we talked about last week, we don't do this out of a sense that we're trying to impress God or trying to get his attention. We're doing this because he has poured his love into our lives, ultimately through Jesus. Who was our ultimate neighbor? It was Jesus himself. It was Jesus who saw us on the side of the road and bound us up. It's Jesus who paid at his own expense to see us healed. It's Jesus who saw us when we were fatherless and saw to our adoption to his family. It's Jesus who saw us when we were widowed and invited us to be his bride. It's Jesus who looked at us when we were foreigners and enemies and said, I'm going to bring you into friendship with me and into my new people. This is what Jesus has done for us. This is what he's been doing for us. And this is what he invites us as his new family members, as new members of his household, as people have been given his spirit. He now says, come along with me and let's keep getting more people in the family. Let's keep loving more people. Let's keep seeing more experience, the forgiveness and the freedom, the family that my father has in mind. That's what Jesus has called us to do. It's exciting business to set our love on God, to set our love on neighbor. Jesus, we are thankful that you, that you saw us, rescued us, loved us, gave us everything that we need to now follow you in loving others, revealing and showing in practical, real ways that there is a God who loves people who are broken and vulnerable, people who are in need, people who are just here among us. You've commanded us and given us everything by your spirit so that we can love as you have loved us. And I pray that we at the Erickson Covenant Church, we would lean into this, that in the weeks that follow, we would set our love upon you and upon neighbor in ways that move us more deeply into your mission. Pray that you would provoke us to continue praying about this, discerning this. And for those of us among us who there's been something of a call here this morning, something that has provoked us particularly. I pray that we'd be open to your leadership and that in community we'd be discerning the call you've placed upon our lives. Father, thank you for loving us. Jesus, for doing everything possible for us to return to you. And Holy Spirit, for coming to make us one. We bless you and thank you in your name. Amen. Well, we're into our new year. Next week, we're going to start a series in the book of Ruth. And for the next few months, we'll be exploring this beautiful story in the Old Testament. And I want to I throw it out to you because I'm, I'm kind of letting you know, because if you've ever been in a place, or you know people who have ever been in a place where you wondered, like, what can little old me do? I feel, I feel vulnerable. I feel unnoticed. I feel like I'm stuck in life. Can God really use me? I believe through the book of Ruth, we see that God can use the unnoticed to do the unimaginable. And through that story, we will be so encouraged and so challenged with what God wants to do through us and in us for others. Would you stand today as I send you to our coffee time with a blessing?
May the Father who loves us, may Jesus who walks with us, and the Holy Spirit who empowers us, send us today with his love and his grace, revealing to all who he is. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in grace.